right, welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Once again, without the Englishman, or so I assume, it occurs to me that uh, Jimmy Quinn, who is is sitting in for Charlie this week, hello, Jimmy. Um, I don't really know anything about your background. I assume that you're not uh, English. I know you were a Buckley fellow, but I really don't know what your life and career was like uh, before coming to National Review. So um, tell us a little about yourselves for the Mad Dogs and Englishmen listeners who may not know you very well. Kevin, thanks so much for having me on. And uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I'm not I'm not an Englishman. Um, I, uh, I grew up in New York, um, in, uh, you know, the, the suburbs of New York City. And, um, you know, I, I, I went to school in New York for two years at, at Columbia, but I, I did this dual uh, degree program with a school in France called Sciences Po. So I was I was over there. Uh, at a campus in the Champagne region uh, for you know another two years, um, and uh, you know in between I, I did an internship at National Review, which eventually led me after graduation to the Buckley Fellowship, and uh, you know so so I've been here uh, at NR uh, with you since, um, and I, I recently started in a new role as the National Security Correspondent. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'd always sort of been interested in, in foreign policy and, you know, national security type stuff. But, uh, you know, particularly when I was in college, there's there more talk about uh, sort of like the great power competition side of things. We were, uh, you know, moving on from this focus on jihadism. Uh, and the conversation was really, you know, shifting more to, uh, you know, China and the way that uh, Beijing sort of influences, um, you know, American politics, college college campuses, of course, um, and, uh, you know, culture. So, uh, you know, I, I sort of took an interest in that. I, I, I saw how, you know, different um, events were, were canceled, both at Columbia and Sciences Po under uh, mysterious circumstances. Um, so there was this one incident, um, I think it was like in 2016, where um, David Satter, who you might remember, contributed uh, this big piece for us on on Putin's Russia, I, I think probably around that time, um, he was supposed to speak at the school. Um, but then, you know, his talk was mysteriously canceled after, uh, you know, administrators intervened. Um, and, you know, this is a pretty commonplace thing on college campuses these days. There's, you know, uh, they, they, there are all of these different influences on, um, you know, events like this that happen that could be seen as provocative by uh, a foreign embassy. Um, so, so all of that sort of, you know, was it Columbia? Got, uh, that, that one was Sciences Po, but they, there were oh. other events like that oh. at Columbia. So at, at Columbia, there's this event on, you know, Chinese digital authoritarianism that was canceled. Um, you know, there, there's some great reporting in the new Republic about how Columbia's, um, uh, China center, which, you know, is in Beijing, um, has basically sort of compromised, uh, its ability to, you know, uh, really uh, speak about some issues. Um, so, you know, it, it, it was an interesting topic and it kind of shaped what I was looking at, reading about, um, and what I wanted to report on is, you know, I headed into the Buckley Fellowship. Um, and so I've been, you know, sort of focused on, uh, you know, uh, this stuff and other related topics and, you know, national security and foreign policy reporting uh, more generally. And judging by your writing, you have a particular interest in China. Was that a... Uh pre-existing thing or something you developed while you were in school or something that's a recent interest of yours or how did that come about? 
Yeah, I, I'd say it's relatively uh, recent, like in the past few years, uh, along the lines that, you know, I just laid out. Um, and, um, you know, it's also the biggest uh, national security story of our time. I mean, uh, there are just so many different angles that you could take, right? The, the, there's the diplomatic one, you know, what what's Biden saying? What's, you know, Xi Jinping saying? Uh, you know, you could talk about human rights. You could look at, you know, things like uh, uh, this land buying controversy that a lot of people are talking about this month. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's just this huge story and I, it, it's incredibly important. It's interesting to follow. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's just uh, something that, you know, keeps giving, you know, different topics to, to report on and comment on. So. Um... I'll be 50 uh, later this year, and uh, you know I'm a conservative, Republican-ish guy from uh, Texas. So I, I have a challenge for you here, which is convince me I should care about TikTok. Sure. So um, you know th there are a few ways to look at it. I, I think the thing that a lot of people uh, point to is the data security concern you have. I, I think it's like a hundred million U.S. users now, somewhere, somewhere in that ballpark. It's it, it's such a popular app, and it, it, it's popular because it's a great product. Um, people love it. It's really addictive, and you know, super entertaining. Um, but the first concern that most people point to is sort of this data privacy thing. You know, TikTok can kind of collect all of this data from you know uh, uh, voice prints, conceivably. Uh, you know, uh, the, the face prints that you give with, you know, uh, facial recognition, like on your iPhone, um, you know, potentially even what you have on your clipboard, you know, notes that you've typed out already, but, you know, haven't really posted anywhere. Um, so, you know, that that's kind of the primary concern that uh, this uh, foreign government, uh, which is, you know, pretty hostile to the United States and U.S. national security interests, could just be hoovering up all this information um and one you know coming up with interesting trends that with which it can exploit that information um but two posing a counterintelligence risk when uh you know let's say someone who is you know 10 years old now and you know they're using this app and they've been using it for you know i don't know years and years um when they go on to do something interesting, maybe in the future, you know, they go, uh, you know, intern at the State Department, or um, you know, they they go work uh, in law enforcement in some capacity. Um, there could be information that uh, you know the, the Ministry of State Security or you know some sort of other intelligence arm uh, exploits to you know use for uh, you know the the Chinese Communist Party's interests. Are we talking um, about? Blackmail stuff here or other kinds of information that can be exploited? Yeah, yeah, blackmail stuff. And, um, you know, there, I, I guess there's probably a whole other range of things that can be done with that. Um, is it, It's just so much, you know, where you've been, you know, the videos that you're looking at. Um, it's it's honestly, uh, you know, pretty scary. But so, so that, that that's one concern. Right. But there's also this um, sort of foreign malign influence concern. How is the party using this app, which, you know, has, uh, you know, tens of millions of, uh, you know, uh, Americans, you know, in its thrall, you know, every day. How is it using that app to uh, potentially advance uh, its propaganda? Right. 
Um, how can you subtly manipulate algorithms to promote certain videos? Uh, you know, we're, they, we're, we're all focused on this trip that uh, Nancy Pelosi recently took to Taiwan this week. Um, you know, could it, for instance, uh, promote videos that, uh, you know, back Beijing's line? Um, and I, I think these are real concerns, given the fact that TikTok is owned by a company called ByteDance, um, which one is based in China. Um, and two has collaborated with the Chinese party state before uh, on you know propaganda not directly related to TikTok but related to uh, another product it runs, which is basically the Chinese version of TikTok. Um, so you know there, there are these well documented relationships between TikTok's parent company um, and the, the sort of you know Chinese uh, security state. Uh, so that obviously, you know, raises a lot of concerns about, uh, you know, what ByteDance could be doing and how it could be manipulating what, um, you know, Americans are uh, learning about the world. There was a big uh, BuzzFeed piece on ByteDance, I guess, a while back, um, based on some uh, covertly recorded video, if I'm, record if I'm recalling correctly, or audio, rather. And my understanding was that the the audio suggested that ByteDance executives just took it as a took it for granted as a matter of course that all of their data would be available to the to the Chinese government. Is that is that a correct characterization? Yeah. So so you know, it, uh, BuzzFeed basically obtained like I, I think eighty internally you know recorded discussions between uh, ByteDance employees or TikTok employees and um, you know different consultants that they had brought in. Um, and what they found, you know, like you said, is that uh, this data could be accessed from, you know, ByteDance's headquarters in, in Beijing. So, um, you know, TikTok has tried to imply in its communications to lawmakers and, um, you know, in its public statements that uh, there's sort of a firewall between, uh, you know, ByteDance headquarters and data that's collected by uh, the U.S. TikTok team. They tried to make it seem like, you know, that's totally separate. Um, well, the story basically debunked, you know, all of those claims and, you know, proved that at least internally at TikTok, um, no one really believes that to be the case. Um, and, you know, that, that, that's super disturbing given, uh, you know, by Dan's uh, relationships to, you know, uh, party state organs. Um, so, so that kind of like broke the whole thing open and, and then all these lawmakers uh, started sending letters and demanding answers from TikTok. All of this was... Uh, in the past month and a half, um, uh, there's an FCC commissioner uh, who's investigating this. Um, and really, you know, it's a big bipartisan push now where you have Mark Warner, uh, the Democrat who chairs the Senate, uh, you know, Intelligence Committee, and Marco Rubio, who's the vice chair of the committee, um, you know, sort of pushing for this FTC investigation and a counterintelligence probe. Um, so it, it's a big problem and people are, are kind of uh, focusing more on it now. There's this whole kerfuffle back in 2020 when, you know, President Trump, uh, you know, tried to, tried to ban the app that got held up in the courts. And, you know, uh, there were all these concerns about the kind of, you know, mercantilistic uh, approach that he took to it, where he tried to, you know, get an American company to buy it. Um, but the fact is, the, these are real security concerns and they're not going away. And, you know, they just keep resurfacing. And we're going to keep talking about it until, you know, uh, someone takes action here. Yeah. So I guess we've got sort of um, two broad classes of data that we need to worry about. One is 
stuff that has individual applications that you were talking about earlier, whether that's in the form of things that could expose someone who goes on to have a sensitive position later in life to blackmail or to other kinds of you know sensitivities. But I guess there are also kind of macro data concerns that um, the Chinese government is able to use this information that it's gathering from this very, very large digital footprint that TikTok has in the United States to do things like tailor its propaganda to um, to learn how to become a better and more effective communicator uh, in, in service of its own interests and a more effective disruptor of communications also in the service of its interests. So which of those do you think is really the, um, the more urgent issue in, in the here and now? I think in the here and now, um, the second category is, and the reason is you, you know, look at what um, the, the U.S. government says Russia has done in, in, in terms of manipulating different, uh, you know, groups in the U.S. to kind of, you know, go out and protest both on the, the left and the right. Like th- there have been multiple demonstrations that have been attributable to, you know, things that uh, individuals and entities uh, affiliated with Russian intelligence services have have done. I mean, there, there's just I, I think it was an indictment uh uh, either uh, this week or last week of someone who was affiliated with the FSB, basically, um, you know, getting people to protest and send petitions around and, and basically cause chaos. Um, and with TikTok, conceivably, if you're able to, you know, scrape all of this data and look at it at sort of a macro level and and pinpoint different trends and, and what people are engaging with, um, you, you have a really interesting, I think, political, cultural, and, and social, you know, uh, uh, roadmap to go off of. And, and you can, you know, figure out what issues to exploit when and, you know, who's engaging with this stuff. Um, so so that, that's pretty disturbing. And then, you know, the, the potential, you know, counterintelligence problems, at, at least for, you know, people who are still very young. And that seems to be what most of the U.S., uh, uh, user bases, um, you know, that that's something that we're going to have to grapple with, uh, you know, down the road um, and, and deal with uh, sort of the concerns that are raised by the data that's being collected now. And what are the partisan politics of this look like domestically? Um, I don't see or detect a really strong split in opinion between Democrats and Republicans on this issue. You've got um, some really China skeptical and China hostile people on the right. You've got some really China skeptical and China hostile people on the left, often motivated by the same thing, which is the concern principally for China, not as a national security threat, but as an economic competitor um, that people blame for uh, you know lack of employment in certain communities, uh, blame as being an unfair competitor in certain industries, that sort of thing. So why isn't there a more kind of uh, unified policy response when it seems to me that you've got both the practical partisan politics and most of the political and economic incentives lined up behind having a uh, more robust and more demanding uh, posture toward toward Beijing. I, I think that's a really good point, and I, I think the answer is, um, you know, this issue is just getting crowded out by everything else that's happening, right? Like people, people do care about. Um, you know, the, the threat posed by, uh, you know, the, the CCP and specifically, um, you know, TikTok and 
you know, it is, it is bipartisan. Uh, but the, the problem is there's just so much else going on that if you're a Republican lawmaker who's trying to, you know, make a name for yourself, you're going to, you know, hammer the Biden administration on, on inflation, on uh, this sort of new mansion deal. Um, you're not, you're not really going to be focused on TikTok. This isn't really, you know, what's driving the conversation right now, even though, um, you know, it's become more of an issue than it was, say, a few months ago. And, you know, likewise, if you're a Democratic politician, um, you know, you might have security concerns, you might be, you know, rather hawkish on China. Um, but this isn't, this isn't really the issue that, you know, you're going to point to and, and kind of wave around and, you know, try to rally your base ahead of uh, the November midterms. Um, so so the, the, the problem is that there is a lot of like broad agreement on this, uh, especially when people engage on the issue, but it, it just doesn't seem like it's at the top of the agenda right now, which, you know, makes sense somewhat given everything else going on. But, uh, you know, the, the people who actually want to act on this need to, you know, kind of step up their game in terms of, uh, you know, starting a, a big debate about it. I think that people, um, Americans in general, maybe don't appreciate the size, scope, and sophistication of the Chinese intelligence operation that's going on here in the United States. Do you think that's that's the case? Yeah, I, I think that's the case. And I, I think that we're going to continue to learn more details about uh, the extent to which, um, you know, uh, Chinese security agencies have uh, penetrated, uh, you know, uh, human rights, cell phone towers, cell phone towers. Yeah. There's, there's a big CNN report on that recently, which, uh, we, we can talk about and, uh, sort of, you know, uh, dissident networks here, people who have escaped the regime and they're, they're settled here in the U S but, uh, they're being manipulated by the ministry of state security. Um, and so, so, so there's that intelligence component. There's also the, the foreign influence component where, uh, you have uh, what's called the United Front Work Department, uh, basically uh, manipulating some of these uh, diaspora groups, manipulating uh, business groups, and uh, exercising influence um, with a softer touch than uh, the intelligence agencies might be. Um, what is the United Front Work Department? The, the United Front Work Department is a it's a party it's a party bureau that basically targets people who aren't officially tar- uh, party members. Um, but it try so that's both within China and abroad, and it tries to influence them and uh, use them to the party's advantage. I, I, I think the bureau's uh, budget is actually larger than the Ministry of Foreign Affairs's budget. If if you want to talk about its significance, and th- this is something that you know uh, a lot of China experts have been talking about, especially in the past like three or four years, but um, it hasn't really entered the mainstream as like a big issue yet. Uh, you know, at least, you know, uh, on the level of, you know, I, I don't know, like cable, cable television and, you know, what a lot of prominent politicians are talking about. Um, but there's been a lot of research done about it, uh, you know, at like the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and, uh, you know, similar sort of think tanks. Um, but, um, you know, it's it, it, it's a wide range problem. And I, I think we're going to continue to learn more about this stuff. The DOJ has recently like in the past six months, unveiled a series of indictments targeting people who, um, you know, tried to harass a congressional candidate in Long Island on behalf of the Chinese government. Um, 
there's this uh, sculpture mocking Xi Jinping and uh, the party's handling of coronavirus. Uh, in, in Los Angeles, it was basically burned down, I think, back in February, and people suspected there was Chinese government involvement. And we learned that for a fact when DOJ unveiled, uh, I think it was in May, a new indictment targeting uh, someone who was working with the Ministry of State Security. So, um, you know, it, it, it seems like uh, a lot of uh, U.S. law enforcement agencies are, are pretty focused on this problem. Uh, and on this broader effort to harass uh, human rights uh, advocates here. Um, but it, it also seems like there's a lot more that is not publicly known that uh, may come to be publicly known, you know, during, uh, you know, future trials and other indictments that uh, might come out. Um, but yeah, this, you know, this cell tower thing is really interesting. Uh, you know, I think what you're referring to is, you know, that report that, um, you know, uh, there have been these law enforcement investigations into uh, uh, different, you know, cell towers across the U.S., sort of close to military bases. Um, and that's sort of scary when you're talking about uh, Huawei, you know, telecom equipment and, you know, the fact that it hasn't been ripped out of the ground yet. Um, so, so that's also a major issue. Yeah. How much of this is difficult to deal with because of the issue of economic interdependency between the United States and China, where we have a very complex and mutually beneficial trade uh, relationship. We have a very complex, uh, particularly manufacturing relationship. So most people, when you ask them about the United States relationship with China, at least until very recently, they would say, well, you know, you go into Walmart and everything says made in China and not made in the USA, which, you know, from my point of view is, is fairly trivial issue. Uh, you know, the United States comparative advantage is not in manufacturing cheap flip-flops. And if someone else is going to do that, that's fine. But there is, of course, a relationship between these, um, you know, sort of more quotidian economic uh, relationships and the larger and more sophisticated efforts that uh, Beijing is able to um, execute in the United States um, with, uh, with a surprising degree of success and with a surprising lack of, I think, American popular public interest in that. I think there's a general sense among a lot of the population that our, our, our main problem with China is really still one of what um, you know American mercantilists think of as unfair trade practices, and, uh, and which often are you know, pretty, pretty shady trade practices, um, irrespective of um, one's view of, of of the proper role of, of government in, in regulating trade. But um, there are these the, these two things that are going on at the same time, one of which is really, I think, sunk into uh, the American political imagination, one of which hasn't. And unfortunately, I think the one that people really have paid attention to is the one that isn't really particularly important or the one that certainly is less important uh, from my point of view. Although I think that a lot of people would say that I'm wrong about that, that they would say that the trade relationship um, by providing you know revenue and economic opportunities for for China and hence the the Chinese government has really been the main driver of these things. So am I um, am I whistling past the graveyard there? So I, I think there's one really interesting aspect to the trade issue that you know maybe maybe people buying uh, you know uh, Chinese products isn't um, 
you know, as direct an issue, uh, as much an issue that directly harms U.S. national security is the fact that, uh, say, millions of Americans are probably invested in companies um, that support the People's Liberation Army. But th there is one important way in which uh, trade, you know, kind of uh, dampens our ability to compete with China and to, you know, address, uh, you know, different problems in the U.S.-China relationship uh, effectively. And that is when uh, you have, you know, certain regions of the country that are deeply, you know, profoundly reliant on, uh, you know, the trade relationship with China to, to buy agricultural goods, to, you know, uh, buy all, all sorts of, you know, products um, that, uh, you know, there are these pretty deeply entrenched relationships between people at the local and you know state government levels uh, with their Chinese counterparts. Uh, there are sister city uh, you know agreements that link you know uh, U.S. cities with uh, you know Chinese cities, um, and this is sort of a, a, a softer form of influence um, with which the party kind of tries to you know shape U.S. policy because you know, say when, whatever the merits of, uh, you know, the Trump-China tariffs are, um, you know, it's an issue when uh, a foreign government is able to mobilize Americans to lobby against these things. And, you know, th there have been some incidents that, um, you know, suggest that uh, things like that might have happened before. Um, so, you know, I I'm not so sure about the exact, you know, uh, impact that the manufacturing issue has, but um, I, I think that as a foreign influence issue, it's, uh, it's pretty important. Um, and also, you know, on the human rights dimension, uh, there's this major push to get, uh, you know, uh, forced labor goods, you know, produced in Xinjiang out of uh, our supply chains. Um, and so that was a pretty monumental piece of legislation that passed, uh, you know, back in December to do that. Um, and I don't think companies have really, uh, even started to grapple with, uh, you know, the implications of that yet. Um, so we're, we're, we're going to have to see, you know, how that works out over the next couple of years. So what are the near-term issues in the U.S.-China relationship that conservatives should be paying attention to for the um, next couple of years? So, I mean, I, I think Pelosi's visit, you know, gives us an obvious one, Taiwan. Um, how... How are we going to, you know, support Taiwan? Is it, uh, you know, probably faces down a, a likely, you know, Chinese military threat, possibly a full-out invasion, you know? Um, so, you know, that that's something we're going to have to debate. How far do we go? Um, you know, some people, uh, some former officials, uh, uh, Mark Esper, uh, Mike Pompeo, have recently traveled to Taiwan and said, uh, you know, we should just drop the fig leaf uh, that is preventing us from, you know, recognizing Taiwan as an independent nation. Um, a lot of other experts say, well, you know, that, that might actually, you know, lead to uh, a more direct conflict sooner. So, uh, but, um, you know, there are these ongoing debates that uh, we're going to have to grapple more with. Um, and I, I'd say related to that is sort of uh, this no limits, you know, Russia-China partnership. Uh, that uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin um, basically inaugurated uh, uh, this past February, right ahead of the Olympics. Um, how far does that actually go? What kind of support are these two countries, uh, you know, giving each other? There's 
some indications that it's probably more uh, a political and, and diplomatic arrangement uh, than it is, you know, say, uh, an agreement by which China provides uh, Russia military equipment for, uh, you know, the invasion of Ukraine. Um, I was wondering. I was wondering how seriously you think we should take that. Um, is that, you know, a sort of public statement of um, aspirations for their relationship, or is this an actual sort of functioning? Uh, general purpose, and as they say, no limits partnership that we should be understanding to be something more than public relations? We we should take it seriously. Um, that doesn't mean it's truly a, a no limits partnership, because clearly, you know, there have been limits. I, I don't know if you read that Tom Friedman column mm-hmm. this week. Uh, basically, you know, he, he spoke to some senior administration officials and uh, reported some interesting nuggets about how the White House is handling, you know, Russia and China. And one of these things was that um, uh, the administration thinks it prevented, uh, you know, China from giving military equipment to Russia for the invasion uh, through the warnings that, you know, uh, it sent, you know, different diplomatic channels. Um, So, you know, without that sort of proactive diplomatic push, would China have provided weapons or other military equipment for the invasion? Who knows? Um, you know, the, the Chinese are trying to downplay the agreement. Uh, you know, the, the Chinese ambassador uh, to, to Washington, Chen Gong, was recently at the, I think, the Aspen Security Forum, the, the mm-hmm. one that took place uh, earlier this month. And he was saying, you know, well, you know, it, 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 it does, you know, sort of have limits. But, you know, then some people uh, wondered, uh, you know, is he deliberately trying to downplay a really uh, sort of productive relationship between the two countries. Um, it, it's, it's not clear. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is a pretty, you know, substantial partnership, but it does seem to have some limits right now. So we'll, we'll just have to see, you know, where it goes. But it, it's something that, you know, we should be tracking pretty closely, I think. What do you think the U.S. should do about its trade relationship with China? I mean, there are some people, I think, who would just prefer that we would kind of break it off, even though that would be enormously disruptive. Um, there are some people who think, an uh, increasing number of people, I think, who believe that it was a mistake to uh, grant China you know, permanent most favored nation status back in the 90s and to agree to its uh, accession to the World Trade Organization. Do you think this is something that really requires a fundamental reordering of our relationship, even though that would be disruptive, risky, and expensive? Um, Or is this something that we can, a situation in which we can address our our biggest security and economic concerns without fundamentally disrupting that relationship? I don't think at at this point, like a full sort of decoupling option, like the one you just laid out, uh, is is really that feasible. I, I, I don't think the political willpower is there. And it, it might have, you know, uh, some pretty severe ramifications for us economically at this point. But what we can do is we can sort of uh, take these steps around the edges in a really impactful way by, uh, you know, preventing uh, certain interactions between, you know, U.S. capital markets and, um, you know, companies in China that are involved in the PLA's, you know, military buildup and, uh, you know, uh, the surveillance of, uh, you know, minority groups and uh, sort of, you know, other human rights abuses that are that are taking place. 
Um, these are sort of no-brainer steps that we should be taking. Uh, for instance, you know, the, the federal uh, pension fund, um, which has, I, I think, like, you know, six or seven million people uh, uh, as, uh, you know, as people who, you know, are involved in this, um, recently opened up a new mutual fund window that apparently would let, uh, you know, federal government employees, and, you know, people who retired um, to invest in mutual funds that, you uh, you know, would basically allocate them or allocate their investments in uh, certain firms that, uh, you know, are involved in, uh, you know, Chinese military activities. And so this is something that a lot of people have been warning about, like, since June, when the mutual fund window opened. Um, but, you know, obviously, we should you know, be taking steps to make sure that Americans aren't, uh, whether, you know, directly or indirectly investing in those companies. Um, but, the, the political willpower, you know, as for these other issues we've been talking about, just hasn't been there. There, there hasn't been enough visibility um, on this, uh, you know, recently. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think, you know, uh, the full decoupling thing just isn't going to happen. But, you know, there are other sort of smart, tailored steps that we can take right now. Um, and then, you know, uh, Biden, as I'm sure you're following, has this big decision on the China tariffs. Uh, coming up, whether, you know, the U.S. should be rolling them back uh, or, you know, keeping, you know, the, the Trump era tariffs where they are. Um, you know, uh, I, I think, you know, rolling them back at this point could show that, you know, we're, we're not too serious about uh, the, the competition uh, and, uh, you know, we're willing to sort of back down to seek a more cooperative relationship. Um, and, you know, that that's not the same as necessarily saying, you uh, they were economically successful um, or even, you know, beneficial. Um, but the, the signaling aspect, you know, shouldn't be ignored there. Gotcha. Do you have any book recommendations for people who want to um, be better informed about the, the U.S.-China relationship? I think the last big book I read was um, Capitalism with Chinese Characteristics, which is pretty old at this point. Sure. I mean, so I, I, I think on sort of the political influence angle that I was talking about earlier, um, there's this book called Hidden Hand uh, by Clive Hamilton, who is this Australian professor who um, basically, uh, you know, uh, exposed a lot of Chinese political interference networks in Australia. Uh, and, you know, that sparked a major political reform. Um, and uh, Mariki Olberg, who, um, you know, is a, is a German researcher. And they basically go through and they document uh what the United Front, what uh, other sort of political influence groups are doing across the world. And they kind of go region by region and um, they look at, you know, how this actually works, who specifically is involved, and uh, they call out some pretty big names, uh, U.S. politicians, you know, uh, major, major bankers, um, and, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, world leaders. Um, so that's, uh, I, I, I think that would be a good place for a lot of people to start. But um, you know, there, there have been a lot of uh, recent books on this topic, obviously, because, you know, a lot more people are reading about this. I, I, Nuri Turkle, uh, who is a weaker American uh, government official, um, wrote a book about his experience growing up in Xinjiang uh, and, you know, coming here and, you know, fighting for uh, weaker human rights. Uh, it, it's a really, you know, touching uh, memoir that, you know, exposes a lot of, you um, you know, the party's uh, human rights atrocities 
uh, that just came out in May. I, I think it's definitely worth reading. I'm hopefully going to review it for National Review soon. Um, so yeah, I would uh, I, I would start there. Great. Anything else? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think uh, I think a more you know classic uh, you know book you know is the the search for modern China uh, by by John Spence. Um, you know, that's that that's just kind of a good overall you know. Uh, look at, you know, China from, uh, I guess, like 1500s or the 1600s up until I think the 90s or the early 2000s, you know, just after Tiananmen Square. You know, it's it, it's a good overview. Great. All right. Well, Jimmy, I've enjoyed the uh, conversation. We should do this again sometime. And uh, we will talk to you all next week. Thanks a lot.